Last time I gave a talk like this, I called it something like compassion needs emptiness, kind of implying, as I did in the guided meditation, how you know, if we get too caught up in self-view or tight, that compassion can't flow. But in reflecting on this, I realize that's kind of a mistaken view. As I think I already said, compassion is empty. It is a constructed thing, just like everything else on this conditional realm. And that's really important for us to remember. Um, The compassion quotes are on page 19 that I'll refer to a couple of times if you want to look at them. But I think it's helpful to reflect that compassion is integral to this path of practice. It was there from the very beginning. When the Buddha first was enlightened, he was reluctant to teach, thinking people wouldn't understand. And it said that a Brahma god came down and and begged him to teach, said something like, there are those with but little dust on their eyes, and they, they will be able to understand. So he began his dispensation, his teaching, for 45 years. You know, he was liberated. Um, his, his problem was solved, as they say. But he continued to teach out of compassion for people. And that first quote, I think I already read, where he said something like, go out, and out, of, out of, for the benefit of the multitude, the happiness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the welfare, benefit, and happiness of devas and humans. And that's where he says, uh, speak in the idiom of the people. So convey this message so that others may find a way out of suffering. So compassion has been there from the very beginning and is woven through this practice. In a way, we've been talking about compassion all week. As soon as you start talking about suffering, compassion is the natural response if the heart isn't closed. So if there's a little bit of space, there's compassion. So there are these two great proximate causes for compassion. One is suffering. It said the proximate cause for compassion is suffering. Compassion arises uh, in response to suffering. So suffering is a doorway. We've said, talked many times about Dharma doorways. Why is uh, suffering noble? It's because you find a path in it, it leads you to the end of suffering. As the Buddha said, he teaches again and again, suffering and the end of suffering. Interwoven in there is compassion, is res- this response to suffering, this, this, uh, this immediacy, this tenderness. And then the other great proximate cause for uh, compassion is wisdom. Guy spoke beautifully yesterday about this union or the nature of the mind, that it's empty, radiant, and ceaselessly responsive, or compassion, full of compassionate activity, that a mind that's awake that's wise, that that understands emptiness, basically, is compassionate. So when people ask, you know, where is compassion in this? Because emptiness can seem kind of dry and void and deficient. It's right there in the very teaching itself that a true understanding of emptiness brings compassion. You've probably heard that um, 
quote which is attributed to the Buddha, but I don't think the Buddha said it, but that we need to develop the two wings in our practice of wisdom and compassion and that they balance each other. That this is the thrust of practice, is to deepen in wisdom, that the natural result of that is compassion. As we deepen in compassion, the wisdom deepens, so they kind of feed each other. Both are necessary. A bird can't fly with just one wing. A bird cannot even fly if you clip a few feathers on one wing. I used to keep chickens. I know you just clip the few of the flight feathers. They can't fly. They need, we need both. I heard that Thich Nhat Hanh now says that the body of the bird is mindfulness. That's kind of the engine that drives this development of wisdom and compassion. But the two are inextricably linked. And so the Buddha was often called the compassionate one. As we open to the truth of suffering, and it is a truth, you know, suffering and then the possibility of the end of suffering, this is the response of the heart for our own suffering, and I think that's really important. Again, as I said in the meditation exercise, that the Four Noble Truths are not just beliefs, they're practices. And each one has a practice. Suffering is to be understood. Its cause is to be abandoned. But in the suffering is to be understood is this evocation of tenderness. It's like, oh, this is hard. What can I do to ease this suffering? How do I hold this suffering? And the main thing is to develop wisdom, but to create space. Again, we can't open to the fullness of compassion out of self-identity view. You know, I'm the compassionate one. I'm, I'm the person who's helping others. I don't know if you've been in an experience where there's been some difficulty, some struggle, and someone kind of bustles in and starts trying to fix everything. Do you know what that feels like? It's kind of, no, no, let's just be with this for a while. It's not a matter of fixing. It's can we be with this with tenderness, with openness? Can our equanimity allow us to stay in this spaciousness that, that just holds the suffering? So it's not about... Even though the natural response to suffering of the compassion is to help, this is really an important point of knowing when we're helping so we don't have to feel to fix, to get rid of. To, it's a fine line that we need to discern. But to see that what's actually most helpful is this sense of spaciousness, that I as an individual, as a limited uh, f- being, cannot open to the suffering of the world. It's, it's not possible. But if I just tune into suffering as a quality and as it says in the text, exalted, immeasurable, not me being compassionate, then it's possible to hold more than we actually think. And all of us will find, you know, an edge somewhere. Sometimes it's really immediate. We just can't do it. Then that's when we need to be compassionate towards ourselves. It's not about forcing this or pushing through, but seeing that it's, Again, because it's constructed, we can develop the capacity for compassion. We can develop the capacity to sit with suffering. And it can sometimes seem that retreats are designed to give us that opportunity. You know, physical, mental, we sit with suffering, we struggle. 
I was talking with a group of you in the early days about, you know, even though we've done many retreats before, the first days are just kind of a circle of hell. You know, the body is aching and the mind is restless and there's the issues at home that are still with us. And I really saw how it's kind of an initiation. You know, you have to go through that ring of fire to get through and be willing to stay with it. I mean, I'm surprised you're all still here, you know. (laughs) And people come back. Because this is really difficult. But it's because we see somehow we learn to sit with the suffering and not push it away. That we know that, sure, you can push that suffering away. You can manipulate this suffering. But open to all suffering, you know it's not possible. So we end up just sitting. And that's the practice of compassion. It's just being willing to be with things as they are. To have that steadiness, that equanimity that allows us to let things be. Then, of course, we can move into action, as Kuan Yin does. But it comes from that place of spaciousness and acceptance. All of the Brahmaviharas, and equanimity particularly, comes from accepting things as they are. doesn't mean it's passive or helpless or hopeless, but it accepts that this is the way things are. There is this suffering. There is this illness. There is this, you know, dying happening right in front of me or or grief or loss. This is the way it is. So we don't resist that. But we allow it to be. And then the compassionate activity can happen. I love the piece that Gil read the other day. And I forget even what the context is, but this is exactly what I mean. We've been talking about compassion all week. It was about we are all healers from someone, I think it's in a um, chaplaincy training. I'll read it again. We are all healers who can reach out to offer health, and we are all patients in constant need of help. That's a beautiful way to start, that reciprocity. We're not the one who's got it all together, always you know, in that mode of helping, but interdependent, all arising out of conditions. Only this realization can keep professionals from becoming distant technicians and those in need of care from feeling used or manipulated. But when we look at healing as creating space for the stranger, it is clear that we should be willing and able to offer this so much needed form of hospitality. Therefore, healing means, first of all, the creation of an empty but friendly space where those who suffer can tell their story to someone who can listen with real attention. That's compassion. Creating an empty but friendly space. Empty but ceaselessly responsive, where someone can tell their story. Our most important question as healers is not what to say or do, but how to develop enough inner space where the story can be received. Healing is the humble but also demanding task of creating and offering a friendly, empty space where the stranger can reflect on their pain and suffering without fear and find the confidence that makes them look for new ways right in the center of their confusion. I don't know if he's Buddhist, but he certainly writes like one. I love that friendly, empty space. This is what we're creating here. As we talk about emptiness, it's not nihilism. 
The Buddha said again and again, nihilism is not what we're talking about. It's this space that's suffused with sunlight. Suffused, and you could say the sunlight is warmth, is that friendliness that meets experience and lets it be just as it is. But it needs us to get out of the way a little. If it's all about me and my doing or my suffering or your suffering and it's very individuated and and sort of mechanistic in that way, true compassion can't arise. It really needs to come out of this union of the wisdom and, and seeing the wisdom and compassion, but seeing the emptiness there. And as I said, it's been woven through this tradition, compassion and the bodhisattva spirit. Bodhisattva is this uh, uh, wish to alleviate suffering in the purest and most uh, effective way, which is to bring beings to enlightenment through your own awakening. And again, it is often felt that the Mahayanas have a lock on bodhisattva spirit. And I don't think that's true. The Buddha was a bodhisattva. The Buddha was a great manifester of compassion. And that tradition and practice is woven through um, these 2,500 years of these teachings in all of the different traditions in Sri Lanka and Burma and Thailand, the Bodhisattva uh, ideal is, is, is practiced and was practiced. The two other readings are by Dhammapala, who um, was a, a, a commentator on the text, wrote this beautiful treatise on the Paramis, I guess in some of the 14th century earlier than that, 10th, 8th, 8th century. Um, I read Medieval, I'm not sure what... Anyway, he's a little mysterious, they don't know. They think he's Sri Lankan, but not quite sure. But you can see how, you know, this is from Sri Lanka, that this Bodhisattva spirit was so much there. And this is from his treatise on the Paramis, Paramis. We now undertake a detailed explanation of the Paramis for the clansmen following the suttas, who are seriously engaged in the practice of the vehicle to great enlightenment, Mahabodhiyana. The condition for the paramis, and you know, they're the ten perfections, equanimity and truthfulness and determination, etc. Condition for the paramis is firstly the great aspiration which occurs thus, crossed I would cross others. So this is so someone has come to their awakening and wants to bring others with them. Crossed, I would cross others. Freed, I would free others. Tamed, I would tame others. Calmed, I would calm others. Comforted, I would comfort others. Attained to Nibbana, I would lead others to Nibbana. Purified, I would purify others. Enlightened, I would enlighten others. The characteristic of the aspiration is rightly resolving to attain supreme enlightenment. The function of the aspiration is to desire, O may I awaken to supreme perfect enlightenment and bring well-being and happiness to all beings. Its proximus cause is great compassion. So often, again, I'm not an expert in the bodhisattva practices in the Tibetan or Mahayana tradition, but it's, I think it's often misunderstood as... as putting off your enlightenment and being of service to others in a kind of practical way. And there may be aspects to that, but the heart of the Bodhisattva vow is to get awakened. 
that that's the way you can most truly benefit others. And in that, bring others on in awakening. And then the next one, also from Dhammapala. Through wisdom, the Bodhisattva, and I'm going to say herself, brings herself across the stream of becoming. Through compassion, she leads others across. Through wisdom, the Bodhisattva understands the suffering of others. Through compassion, she strives to alleviate their suffering. Through wisdom, she becomes disenchanted with suffering. Through compassion, she accepts suffering. Through wisdom, she aspires for Nibbana. Through compassion, she remains in the round of existence. Through compassion, she enters samsara. Through wisdom, she does not delight in it. Through wisdom, she destroys all attachments. But because her wisdom is accompanied by compassion, the bodhisattva never desists from activity that benefits others. Through compassion, the bodhisattva shakes with sympathy for all. But because compassion is accompanied by wisdom, her mind is unattached. Through wisdom, she is free from eye-making and my-making. Through compassion, she is free from lethargy and depression. So it's all there, this union of wisdom and compassion, free from eye-making and my-making. Then this compassionate activity can be ceaseless. And in saying that, I don't want to put out this ideal that we should be out there all saving the world. You know, we have to be right where we are with this, okay with who we are, but have a sense of possibility and aspiration and what truly nourishes and nurtures our compassionate activity and always remembering to include in that ourselves. So this tendency to diminishment, to judgment, to self-criticism, to lethargy and depression does not serve this compassionate activity. So bringing compassion to the self that feels diminished or not enough is the starting place of this great unfolding of compassionate activity that is woven through this path. And, you know, I don't know how it was for you, but after a week of practice here, focusing on emptiness... I felt there was more compassion, oh, I'm going to be judgmental here, but anyway, I'll keep (laughs) saying it, more compassion in this room than many metta retreats. Because, again, you know, this is, I'm just throwing this out, it's not, you know, metta retreats are lovely, but on metta retreats there's so much a sense, you know, we, we tend to ourselves so deeply and it's so powerful. I love metta retreats, I love metta practice. But there definitely is that sense of this cultivation of, you know, relative caring. May I be safe, may I be happy. And there was something in the room this morning because we'd been focused on emptiness that was very palpable for me. Again, I don't know how it was for you. So it just is a pointer to, we need all of these practices to actually develop the heart of Kuan Yin. And it doesn't come because we wish it or want it or judge ourselves for not having it but actually with this tenderness, this, this spaciousness that starts right, I love Pema Chodron, she says, start right where you are, and then it will unfold from there. And I meant to say at the beginning, I'm actually going to do this morning a little differently, because I don't feel we need too many words on compassion. You know what I'm talking about. You've had 
<clears throat> your own deep experiences of both expressing compassion and receiving compassion from others. So we're actually going to do our exercise this morning um, because this afternoon we'll move transition more into going home and, and um, coming out of the retreat a little. So it felt good to just contain the compassion practice and exercise this morning. So we're going to do our old favorites, two repeating questions. Hopefully you've gotten a little comfortable with the form now. And just to really use it as a meditative practice. One of the important things about this as a meditation exercise, and it is, I hope you really get that, it's a meditation out loud, it's reflection meditation out loud, is to stay in the present moment and include in your sharing what you're feeling about sharing. You feel shy or vulnerable or irritated or nervous, or your heart is beating, include the physical response. This actually helps ground the sharing that we do. So really important to include that as you do this as a practice. And you don't, it's helpful to give the immediate response because there's just something about that 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 has a truth, a truthiness to it. Um, But it's also fine to just Sit for a moment. You want to answer. It's not like you can just take the whole time up and sit silent. No, but to really feel in, as you, especially as you sit with the practice, to let it deepen. To stay connected with your partner, so you can close your eyes at times, but come back to connection. That's an important part. And again, the person who's asking is just the passive compassionate supporter. You don't have to smile, you know, it's not, you know. You can, of course, but there's something about someone just really taking in what's being said with some, I was going to say seriousness, that's a bit too serious, but what's, what's another word? Just some care. care, thank you, just some care. So the two questions are, tell me what blocks your compassion. Tell me what blocks your compassion? And then the second question is, tell me what it's like to feel compassion right now. Tell me what it's like to feel compassion right now. And we'll take about seven minutes for each of these. And then at the end, you'll have a little time just to share with each other what that was like to talk in that way. Any questions about the exercise? Seven. I'll time. I'll be here timing. Yes, seven minutes. No, it's not looping. So it's a repeating question. One person will ask the question. The other person answers. The first pers- person says, thank you. Ask exactly the same question. You don't change the wording. Same question again. And I'll ring a bell and I'll guide the whole timing of it. Yes. So the first question is, tell me what blocks your compassion. And the second question is, tell me what it's like to feel compassion right now. And that's, an you know, as I said, to keep it in the moment, literally, physically. What does it feel like to feel compassion right now? Yes. Is there any reason we can't go back to a part we've already had? Uh, you can, of course. You, it's free world. You can do that if you want. But I was going to... 
get a little playful with it. So I was going to, you can do that. And then I'm going to offer that, find someone who's wearing the same color as you. And if you're wearing, a lot of you are, kind of black, brown, beige. (laughs) See if you've got any little spot of color. You can connect. If you've got a little bit of blue, you can connect with someone wearing blue. So you can stand up. Take your cushions with you. Find someone who's wearing the same color. If you want to go with someone it feels right for you to be with, please just do that. So look around the room for your color coordinate. And when you find your partner, sit down. Yeah. Please, you're excused. Thanks, Will. Take care. Yes. So put your hand up. Do you still need a partner? And at this point, you can just choose someone. So look around. There's people with their hands up. Jody, Jody, look behind you. Here's uh, Lloyd. Who still needs a partner? Per person. Seven minutes per person. I will time. So anyone still need a partner? So there's one gentleman that still needs a partner. Would someone be willing? Would you be willing to do it, Nikki? Would you mind? Well, Nikki will do it with you. That, we can we could do a triad, but it's just easier. Thank you, Nikki. So just sit quietly for a moment, please. Just letting yourself feel being in the presence of this other person who has a tender heart just like you and is going to be practicing not judging, fixing, or comparing. Just knowing that to start with. And then the person whose first name is earlier in the alphabet will ask the question first. So introduce yourself to each other, say hello, ask the first question, tell me what blocks your compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.